welcome to The Apple of Truth, a weekly podcast where we cover every episode of Lucifer while exploring plot holes and admiring the guyliner, all with love for the show and its creators. I'm Lina. And I'm Vero. And today we're covering Lucifer Season 2, Episode 5, Weaponizer. I'm not gonna make the joke. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm singing in my head. I hope everybody who's listening to this is singing in their heads. We have a different title in German. And again, I'm more of a fan for the German title because the German title is Guardian Devil. Something, by the way, that is also said in the episode. But the weaponizer is said as well, right? Yes, but the German title as well, just like last episode. So season two, Germany doing good. Germans stepped up their game. They are doing well, yeah. All the summaries are shit as usual. So you get another one of mine. This time, Lucifer tries to protect Chloe from unseen dangers. Abes gets the shit beaten out of him. Chloe has one of her best emotional moments so far. And we are left with true anguish in the end. I hate the end of this episode so much. But you don't hate my summary. No, 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 no. We'll get to it. My emotional stunts personality has issues with this episode because it's too emotional. I'm not surprised, but we will talk about the two emotional moments when we get there. Yes. Facts and fun. We have another repeat writer, also third time, just like last episode. This time we have Jason Ning, who wrote episode three, the would-be Prince of Darkness. Remember the super shit episode with the blonde villain and the sports virgin? Uh. And he also wrote episode six, favorite son with the biker gang and the stolen container. Oh, the misspelled one. But the episode six had the amazing closing scene, if I'm remembering correctly, with Lucifer on the balcony. Yes. So finale of that episode and finale of this episode, Jason Ning knows how to do emotion if he does emotion. If he doesn't do emotion like an episode three season one, then it's very bland. We are also 545, Lucifer saying the episode name. So far, only him being the one. And there was one hilarious IMDb fact that I have to share because I'm such a sucker for continuity over different shows. When they discover the body of the actor Lucifer admires, there's a poster titled Body Bag 4, which is actually the same movie that is prominently featured in True Romance 1993, only it works out perfect with the timeline, as in the movie True Romance, they talked about making Body Bag 3, and a new poster now showing up in this show is Body Bag 4. So time-wise, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So super irrelevant tidbit, but it makes me extremely happy. And of course, everyone who listened to us before knows I have a slight obsession with anything Whedon-related. And of course, Charisma Carpenter, who plays the ex-wife and still wife and cheating wife, is one of the Whedon actors. And so we have two previous connections because Amy Garcia has been on Angel. Oh, I didn't know that. And also, Amanda Deals, actor, D.B. Woodside, was on Buffy, but Charisma had already left so they did not have scenes together. Well I may or may not have called that character Cordelia in my notes <laughs> the entire time. I don't remember the wife's name. I just called her Cordelia. So please, listeners. That's very disappointing because Cordelia would never feel the need to cheat because Cordy is a queen. All right. And now, oh, we are doing the obsession of the week. This episode was slightly more problematic. I have written down a couple of different ones, but I'm gonna end up going with Chloe's safety being the obsession because I think that is a big motivator. It was a big kind of a fight between Chloe's safety and keeping Chloe and mom for himself. So like anywhere between I actually really care about this person and I'm super selfish and I just want to have everybody close to me. I went way more meta and went for avoiding mortality because he's protecting Chloe from death and finds out that uh, Uriel would kill mom, which also is not an option. He doesn't find out about that until the very end. Yeah, but it's what leads him to do what he does. And also a Amenadiel is playing at him still being at full power and everything and avoiding the reality of his weakened and thus vulnerable state. And with Azrael's blade now in play, we have the entire 
mortality issue for everyone, not just humans. So that's why I went with avoiding mortality. Give us the previously on, please. Previously on Lucifer. Mace and Chloe shook on being roommates. Mum is punished into the life of Charlotte. She claims it's okay because she can be closer to the family. Lucy exchanged punishing mum for sparing Chloe's life. Ames can't take mum back and Chloe gets into a car accident. Missing and very important, Amenadiel explicitly warns Lucifer about potential consequences for Chloe's life in the previous Leon. I felt like that was contained in the fact that he has exchanged those two things. But yeah, I can see why you want that to add. We're starting out with a very unusual scene. This feels very non-Lucifer show to me. I love this scene so much. To start, we get an amazing song. We get one of the big classics again. It's by the Rolling Stones and it's called Time is on my side. One, again, the title is pretty amazing, but it's the Rolling Stones. Apparently, the song is also used in another movie about a time-traveling angel or something. Hmm. I did not go into research there, but that sounds like fun. But I really, really like how this scene is done. And I love... How do you call it? Is it a ripple effect? Yeah, it's a butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is the specific name, but you're completely right with the ripple effect. I love these little sequences you get to see. That's why I'm so fascinated watching those videos when somebody knocks over a glass and it starts a chain reaction. So I love watching those. And this is just so fascinating to me, just seeing this entire effect, just moving the skateboard one foot to the left. I had forgotten that that dude is Uriel. The Amazon summary tells us that Uriel shows up in this episode. But I had forgotten that that was he. And so my first note was, the dude is a dick for moving the skateboard. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I love the fact that they don't show us his face until the very end of this scene. It's just all shot really, really nicely. The whole camera movement, it's very steady. I'm pretty sure it's one scene, more or less. So it's really, really well done. And also, I get pretty much instant confirmation that Chloe survives the car wreck because she instantly gets out of the car. At the very end of this scene, the dude turns to the camera and the face just felt so familiar that I went to Google and the guy was in Goodfellas. And Sopranos. And Sopranos. I've never watched Sopranos, but I have seen Goodfellas at least 10 times but it's been a while since the last time I did so I didn't place the face and it just made me so happy it's like I knew it I just found it hilarious that he was basically like in two mafia shows because he gives off such a mafioso vibe absolutely does yes that was very fitting and she gives off this shady as fuck vibe like dude is shady from the first second we see him so Coming up next, we move into Chloe's new digs. Yeah, moving day. This scene is so good. Ah. It gave me my first real love because when Lucifer holds up the anal beads and goes, do you even know what this is? And Chloe has no idea what it is. It's just like, girl, you need to get out some more. I kind of like the idea of Lucifer being there to help Chloe move, but he doesn't really help, does he? Yeah. He's not helping. He's just randomly grabbing Mace's shit to point out to Chloe that it's not gonna work. And besides the anal bead and the weapons, he also pulls out a ball gag at some point and holds it up in the background. This whole scene, yeah, and the way it's structured touch on Trixie showing up and being super harsh and it feels the very first second that she starts screaming at Chloe that she wants her to read the story now. I was like, okay, that is a bit too much, girl. Like, calm the fuck down. Props to the actress because, damn, she came across sharp. But the explanation of the fact that because Chloe was in the car accident, Trixie had to face... She is now old enough to realize that this is actually... That her mom is mortal. It's not the first time. It's not the first time that Chloe was in the hospital. It's even worse because this happened while Chloe was not even on duty. So now it's not just that mommy has a dangerous job, but now also on top of that, some random shit might happen that takes mommy away. Yeah, but I don't think that Trixie realized the mortality fact before. I agree with 
that as a child you have a very skewed perception of your parents but because Trixie so far has not been portrayed as the classic child I felt more motivated to read a deeper understanding into her than I would into a normal child so basically she's a victim of her own good writing so far (laughs) that's fair enough I love the fact that they add the Lucifer in the background like just randomly picking up bullshit. That's the moment he holds the ball gag? Yeah, I fucking love that because that just made me laugh but at the same time I was being hurt by the conversation that Chloe and Trixie have in the front. This is why I hate this episode because it just gives me too many emotions at the same time and I don't know how to deal. I actually felt this moment was extremely positive because Chloe instantly understands why Trixie is acting out, does not overreact to the overreaction of her daughter, listens to the explanation, explains and cares. Yeah, this is a very good mama moment. Damn girl, get all the brownie points for being a great mom in this moment. And chocolate cakes and Gryffindor points. Which for me is the counterweight. This is where she is very, very perceptive for someone across from herself. And at the end, she's extremely perceptive towards herself. Before we get into some more deep shit, I have two things about this scene. And one, I feel like Lucifer is scared of Trixie when she runs into the room. He seemed to get startled. I feel like there is a difference. I feel like we've been talking why does he hate children, but I feel like he doesn't hate them, he just doesn't understand them. This reaction that he had to Trixie in this scene, the couple of them that he had, felt to me, and that's why I'm bringing it up, like it's more of a I don't understand a child's mind or children in general and that's why I shit on them. For me it's still the disgust as main emotion from him. Yeah, I don't feel that he is disgusted by Trixie anyway. I know that she is a different and she was a very special child but at the same time it felt more like I don't want to have anything to do with you because I just don't understand what, what you are and what you want. I feel like I'm projecting a lot in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so far, yes. No, I just wanted to plant that seat in your head and maybe next time there's a, a confrontation like this, you may keep an eye on that. We're gonna keep it in mind. And the second thing, snow pants and elephants don't mix. What? What does it mean? Have you ever seen an elephant with snow pants? So it's not like you don't wear snow pants when elephant is present, it's... No, an elephant doesn't wear snow pants. But why specifically snow pants? <laughs> it just... So yeah, these are uh, the few things that I felt like were super random and I wanted to have a mention with. But he's still actively fighting against the women in his life teaming up, which I'm still not a fan of. I think he just wants them to think it through really, really, really well. No, he does not want them to move in together, period. I mean, in the sa- at the same time, he is not wrong with the points that he presents when he's there. Yeah, and I agree with Chloe that they can be very good for each other because their different qualities are pretty much what the other person needs. So... I think they, as badly paired as they seem to be on the first glance, I think that their matching is actually really, really smart. Oh no, I absolutely agree with that. I'm just saying that I wonder if Chloe actually thought through the amount of weapons that she's bringing into Trixie's life right now. She was drunk when she agreed to move in together. No, she did not (laughs) think it through. (laughs) Let's move on to scene three and our first crime scene of... The episode. Yay! So I have to say though, like I was gonna mention it last episode and I kind of forgot. They have become way more intricate with their scene changing music that's not an actual song. So sometimes it feels like there's a song, but there's not. They just kind of went the extra mile to not just have the one transition music that they used the entire season one. Feels like a song, but isn't an actual song. Yes, exactly. It's more intricate transition music. So they had more money, apparently. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) Not like us, who have one song that we use for intro, outro, and in between the cutscenes. It's a great song. It's a great song. Okay, going into scene three, our crime scene. I found Lucifer's short monologue a surprisingly good insight why escapism through movies is something that many people need once in a while. 
And I found it not surprising that Chloe has no understanding for that. Because she is not a person that does escape in any kind of form from her mind or brain very well. Also, I think it kind of explains why Lucifer is a fan of completely random pop culture things. Definitely. And with this explanation, I can live quite well. Because in the past, I have not agreed with his random pop culture knowledge. But with this definition set by himself, it makes perfect sense. There is this little random moment which makes the whole statement very Luciferish. When he tries to excuse his love for these films by saying that there are ninjas and nudity. Which is simply an add-on after the profound statement. So he kind of tries to diminish the love for it that he has. So it's very Lucifer, but also we know him well enough by this stage to know that it's not just the nudity and ninjas that he's interested in. We have another very nice IMDb fact because I would not have caught it, even though I learned Japanese for a year. Chloe says the victim was a karate instructor, but all the characters on the wall are Korean, not Japanese. So it's more likely a Taekwondo studio and not a karate studio. Once I knew it, I noticed it because I do know kind So once I knew it, I saw it before that. No chance in hell. It's very cool. But other than that, I think Ella and Chloe are pretty much on the roll, picking up clues and putting together what probably happened. I actually have to apologize to you. Oh, go on. Because you asked me if I thought Lucifer was flirting with Ella and trying to hit on her, get her to Lux to potentially show her the penthouse. And I was very adamant that no way. And given this scene, I'm sorry, you were right. He would instantly sleep with her. I was wrong. Ah, it feels so nice. Even though I believe them having sex would simply not happen on the fact that she does not believe he says who he is, but instead insists he's a method actor and he's extremely annoyed by that. I am not happy with that either, personally. But, I mean, it kind of makes sense from Ella. What else I noticed that last episode Lucifer finds out about Facebook, but now he already has an Instagram account. So go Lucifer, fighting all the social media. And also, Buddy Back 6, and this is just, I didn't research it at all. The Buddy Back 6 is called Tokyo Fire. And I wonder, is this a dig on Fast and Furious franchise? Because you have Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. And you have the arch enemies that then turn to be friends and yada yada. And you have the zillion movies. You have random characters. I just find it, if anybody out there is a big fan of Fast and Furious movies, please, if you can find how much this is connected. I would love to read some more about that. So please send me an email. Sounds realistic enough. I'm simply gonna believe that. I barely seen like a couple of those movies. So I just noticed some of the similarities. I named the next scene, actually. Ooh, let me hear. What's the name for the next scene for you? Rooftop Family Reunion. Nice. Yours is better than mine. Mine is nothing is as annoying as family. I'm just gonna say we meet Uriel here. And this is where I made a note of the name of the actor. Because this is where I decided is a good time to look up his connection to Goodfellas. And his name is Michael Imperioli. I hope that it's pronounced in Italian because this is a great name. It's also hilarious when Lucifer tells him it's less cool brooding angel because to whom is he referring? What other cool brooding angel have we had in LA? Aminadil. IMDb is pretty sure it's a pop culture reference, but I disagree with both ideas. So I was curious if you had any opinion on... I feel like Brooding Angel would be Ames. Cool Brooding Angel in a trench coat. Oh, cool. Like Uriel is wearing a trench coat and... Sounds like Constantine, kind of. Much better than both options in IMDb. Much, much better. But Constantine is not an angel. But it's the same universe. That's why I'm thinking of that. I'm actually way more happy with that. IMDb offered as options Castiel from Supernatural, simply because trench coat wearing angel. It crossed my mind when you said a trench coat. Well, also keep in mind Constantine is like a blonde version of Castiel anyways. And another option according to IMDb is an angel reference, because angel is a cool brooding detective vampire living in LA. So I was not on board with both options. I'm much more happy with the Constantine option because it's the same universe as Lucifer. So they know each other. 
We also, in this scene, get the ultimatum. You have 24 hours to comply. You have 24 hours to save your life. Save her life, sorry, in this case. In my opinion, in this moment already, we realize that Uriel is not here on dad slash god's command. Because I take back what dad gave you. Dad did not give Lucifer Chloe's life. Lucifer was dying and he was praying to God to basically protect Chloe, that Chloe would make it out alive. It was not a given that Malcolm would manage to kill Chloe. Yes, but there is a good chance he would if Lucifer wouldn't come back. There's a chance, but still, her life was not gone. It was not that God took the life and put it back in Chloe's body. So, since technically Chloe didn't die and wasn't dying, it was Lucifer who was dying and dead, put him into hell, showed him the open door, sent him back alive. Yay. So, if Uriel was to be literal and take back what God gave Lucifer, it would have to be Lucifer's life, in my opinion. The note I made here, and I think that's the way it was intended for this to work, was that Dad shared the deal with Uriel and... Uriel took whatever he wanted from it into the mission. But that kind of gets turned around later on as well. So to me, at this moment, I was being taken by surprise by the fact that apparently this deal that Lucifer made is a common knowledge in heaven. It feels like everybody knows about it. And I'm not really liking that scenario. My last actual note for this scene is we have the title card at 7.31. And just before the title card, he does this head flick and it's the most Italian mafia boss film head flick you've ever seen in your life. He's such a mafioso the entire episode. It's so good. This little moment was so perfect. But what I find very, very important for this title card, this is, as far as I remember, the first time that the scene does not continue after the title card, but we go to a new scene. Usually we have the title card somewhere in a scene and we're still at the same crime scene. So... That's worth of note, in my opinion. Also, fashion moment, what I actually really like is what they take from what Eminendil was wearing last season, the angel dress, and now what Uriel is wearing. It's not the same clothing, so it's technically not just a uniform, but it's the same style of clothing. And I really, really like that. You think? Yeah. The whole top, the collar and everything is the same shape. And it seems like it's made out of the same fabric. See, this is why I don't do fashion watch. Yeah, I'm not talking about the coat itself, but the top. So the entire thing that Uriel wears, you know what my association was in my brain? Metatron. Supernatural Metatron. Really? Interesting. I don't see that. I'm curious if we meet more angels and how they're gonna look. And also I'm curious about how Lucifer's original clothing possibly looked. If there is a common element or in the style of how angels cloth if we get to see how what lucifer used to wear wrapping it up moving on to scene five plotting against uriel <laughs> the thing most important for me in the scene is how much on team chloe maces it really feels that the girls night out in last episode has honestly and profoundly changed her opinion and perception of Chloe. And now it's not just her deep dislike of mom, but also she is starting a genuine friendship. And Mace, to me, is by far the most loyal of all our characters. So if she decides that this is now my friend, she will do anything necessary to protect that person, even from themselves, as she's trying to do with Lucifer. To me, Maze's behavior in this scene is a combination of many things. It's definitely, it has to do with the newfound friendship with Chloe. It has to do with her loyalty towards Lucifer. It has to do with her dislike of mom. And it has to do with the relationship she had or still has, in a sense, with Emanadil. So I feel like Mace and her entire world is now threatened by this one angel and the fact that mom is there. And she is willing to do what it takes to protect it. And look, I'm on Mace's side here. Just fucking give mom back. It's easy as that. We get more Luciferness with Uriel plays with patterns, butterfly flaps its wings, and housewife gets chlamydia, which is again very Lucifer. 
to me, this is the moment when I started to get super frustrated with Amenadiel in this episode. Say, I have caps in this. I have a lot of caps related to Ames in this episode because, like, dude, just confess. Just fucking tell them that there's something wrong. He doesn't even have to confess. Just say it how it is and don't put everyone at risk. Exactly, because up until this very moment, he could have kept it to himself. Without hurt for anyone. Yeah. Right now, him not coming clean is putting everybody else in danger. As is pointed out by Mace and it's pointed out by Lucifer and everybody else. It's just baffling to me. Yes, it makes sense because this is a deal we're talking about, but it's so frustrating. Frustrating, so fucking frustrating. I'm curious if Amenadiel is gonna get. Remember how frustrating we found Dan in season one, and now season two, Amenadiel is getting on our nerves even more than in season one. So I do wonder: do we get the same growth? redemption, whatever, that we have already gotten for Dan for a Manadiel from season 2 to season 3. And if so, who's gonna be the next character that's gonna get on our nerves? I cannot think that far in the future about something that's frustrating. Moving on. Scene 6 at the precinct. Most important note I have Guardian Devil. German title right here. Also, that's the scene where Lucifer drops the actual title. So, the scene changes. And my note is on the very first frame I was just finishing up my notes on the previous scene so I just stopped it and I look up and my two side note so the comparison of lighting in this scene to the previous scene is very different it's very dark and it's very gloomy and it's very kind of bluish but what psychopath lifts their finger when they're using a mouse What's wrong with Chloe? I hate when they do that. It's just... No, let's talk about this scene. As disturbing as her mouse wielding is, Mm. what is utterly great and amazing, or how Chloe puts it, utterly adorable, is Lucy and Dan bonding. From the first moment to every single moment in this scene to every tidbit of it later on. It is so wonderful. They're vibing. And actually for me, do you remember me saying that I wonder how things are gonna progress now that our triangle isn't there anymore? And I feel like Lucy and Dan could actually really get along if they wanted to. I think they have similar interests, one of them being Chloe. But Chloe is not the only common thing they have. Yes, that's why I said one of them. So I found that really, really nice and adorable. And I don't expect them to become best friends or anything. But less animosity is nice. I have a question. If we go back to the Uriel scene, Uriel says you have 24 hours. And I wonder, because patterns take time, does this mean that he would set on a pattern on a path before the time runs out? No, because then he would have to stop it. But then, because he then doesn't set the pattern on its way until it should be like way over 24 hours. It's just the timing of this sentence seemed kind of weird because Lucifer seems to be very adamant about keeping an eye on Chloe now and that the danger has passed 24 hours later. So it just feels very weird. No, no, no. The danger has passed when he thinks that Amanadiel has... Oh no, you're right. Huh. It's just an interesting thing that I thought about. No, you you have a point. I didn't think of it that way. For me, it was so obvious because... Uriel strikes me as such a huge mafioso. And the one good thing about the whole cliche mafia bit is if you pay your protection money, then you are indeed protected. So when you get an ultimatum, you do have time to pay your dues until the very end of this ultimatum. But you're absolutely right. From Lucifer's behavior throughout the episode and his assumption that a man a deal is gonna take care of this, it would seem that at least Lucifer works under the assumption that already patterns could be in place. Yes. So that was just something that at this moment stood up to me. But also, Chloe has a sense of humor. 
for once. Yeah, I just wanted to point it out because I know that you hate her, so, you know. I don't hate her, I'm just not a Chloe fan. The same way do you kept pointing out good things about Dan in season one, I will now be slowly poking into your brain that Chloe is a fun human. I already said that Chloe is an amazing mom. I give Chloe way more props than you ever gave Dan in season one. Because Dan was a piece of shit in season one. She already gets brownie points and Gryffindor house points and everything, so... That's good. But more important for me in this scene is that Chloe gives us a very nice callback to Mommy Decker and that she's an actress that goes to ActionCon, which made me very happy. But it didn't make me as happy as Charisma's character talking about Wesley. Just call her Cordy. Because in Buffy and Angel you have a character called Wesley that Cordy interacts with, so simply having Charisma say the name Wesley is nostalgia for me. Anything else from you for scene six? Yes, I feel that Cordelia is very fishy and I don't trust her. It's not Cordy. Same thing. What's her name in this? No idea. There you go. I kept calling her Charisma, so... <laughs> it's a canon. Her name is Cordelia. No! Cordy's a much better human being. And the moment where Dan and Lucifer are describing the films, I got nothing from that. Nothing. That was nothing for me. It's very much for me because I know exactly how it feels to be one of those people. Ah, uh, love it though. It's just it's just such a beautiful depiction of fanboying. Yes. And it comes into play later on with the fanboying. But moving us along to scene seven, which is our obligatory update on mom. I really have to say I'm annoyed by mom. I don't care about her. I think she's annoying as a character. I think she's a very big distraction for mainly Lucifer, but also for Amanadiel and for Maze and pretty much everyone. So, but I understand that this is the plot we're gonna have. So being the bad person that I am, I very much enjoyed seeing her struggle with her life and her work and a stack of papers in her arms. And my only other note for this scene is she talks to Amanadiel about the children. And he says to her, you may not know your children as well as you think you do. Which I actually don't believe. I'm pretty sure she knows exactly what type of danger Uriel is. And she knows exactly how to play a Manadiel. Well, she doesn't technically know that Uriel is the one that's on Earth right now. But this is something that we're going to talk about a little bit later when she has the whole Uriel speech. Because I have a big issue with mom in this as much as I am frustrated with Emanadiel for not coming clean and trying to evade this whole situation of him having to come out with what's happening to him by coming up to mom and trying to convince her to give herself up, the way she plays him like a fiddle and the way she later on treats Lucifer, I am very upset with those Ah, she is very good. She knows what she's doing and she's great at what she's doing, sadly. Yep. Which gives us a hint of the danger that she poses, not just to Lucifer, but to everybody. We're gonna come to this later with the Uriel scene. Coming up next, we have stakeout time, which is not the first time Lucifer and Chloe are in stakeout, but it's been a while and I really like the two of them in the car at stakeout. Like it usually gives us at least fun and sometimes potentially deep conversations. So always a good time. There is a song at this transition and I tried really hard to find it. There are some websites that name the song, but unfortunately the song, I couldn't find not even an example of the song anywhere. So I can't confirm it's this one, but if you do have access to it, it's called Turn It On Again and it's by Max Boogie Overdrive according to the websites that I found. And in this scene, actually, I'm pretty sure that just before Lucifer sees Kimo, he was about to come clean to Chloe about what's going on. His face goes really somber and quiet and it just kind of opens up. I don't know how to explain it. But we might never know the truth because he does see Kimo and runs out of the car. My only note for this scene is 
The weaponizer is fucking Mark the Cascos. I don't know who that is. I grew up on the show The Crow. There was a TV show with Mark the Cascos in the lead for The Crow. And I grew up with that shit. And also the Crying Freeman movie also had Mark the Cascos in the lead. He was in a shit ton of sometimes really bad but great movies. Like those types of movies that are so bad that they're amazing. He knows martial arts and stuff, so he was in a lot of those types of fight movies. He was on The Iron Chef, which is a cooking show. Don't they make a reference to it? I don't know if they make a reference to that. So you turned into Lucifer. Yes, I fangirled so hard. Uh, I feel like when we then move on to the interrogation room with him, Lucifer completely loses his grip on reality. Yeah, he has a hard time separating reality from fiction, is my note. (laughs) And I love that he just gets into it so much because it feels, again, projecting. It feels very familiar. Yes, we've been there and had friends take us back from that moment to not make a fool of ourselves. Exactly. And it's just so sweet to see that this is recognized as something real. But my kind of look at this is I think that he does know the difference between film and reality, but he is just having way too much fun to accept it. Also for me, it was extremely obvious that the weaponizer is not going to be our guilty person. This rubbed me the wrong way. Chloe felt giving up on him. Ah, I address this later on because she most likely has a fucking concussion. She was in a car wreck. She still has bruised there and everything. Her brain is still completely jangled and this is why she's not working at her usual capability. That's my explanation because I agree with you. Girl, what the fuck? She is definitely not being her smart, amazing self with gut feelings. She's cut off from herself because she's pretending to be fine. And also the prints on the murder weapon, it was too obvious. No, the dude was too obvious as potential suspect. And with his prints on the murder weapon, for me, it was 100% sure he can't be the killer. We stay a while at the precinct, actually. Yeah, yeah, we kind of go back and forth. And we got Lucifer paying the bail for your man. Which, I mean, I feel you so much. I just... He believes that he's innocent. Yeah, and he kind of takes over Chloe's gut feeling. He is there with the... Check his alibi, it's not him. He is not a person who would be able to do that. Also, as long as Lucifer believes that the weaponizer is innocent, chemo, then he will not be willing to let the man rot in jail because Lucifer, as we have established in the past season, only wants the guilty to be punished. So very much in character and it's good that Chloe has this type of safety net that even if she isn't operating on the par, she has someone by her side, which is basically the reason why you should have a competent partner. Also, him paying bail gives us the appearance of the business manager. And I could not remember, for the love of me, how this episode ends, crime-wise. And my note is, shouldn't a business manager make sure his client does not run out of money for his business? Aha, I was already skeptical there. (laughs) Very nice, I'm proud of you. In the next moment, though, what a day for ominous angels staring at Lucifer from high grounds. Seriously, right? It's just so perfect. That is 100% done on purpose. That Lucifer looks up at every single time there's one of his fucking brothers, like, who is gonna be next? I ask. But that moment where Ames shows up and Lucifer comes up to him and they again have this conversation where, yes, Lucifer is using Ames for his powers. But Lucy really, really knows how to play Ames. Like, he really strokes that ego. Yeah, he is operating under the assumption that Amenadiel is in his full powers. And I don't think that he would be putting him in this position if Ames would come clean. He would never have done that. And this is my biggest beef with the situation. If Ames was to upfront talk about what is happening to him, even if it would be now. It still would not be too late. Yeah, Lucifer could still adjust his plan and maybe deal with this on another level and maybe it would not escalate this far. Maybe it would have, but maybe it wouldn't. We will never know. I'm wondering, is this the first time we get the confirmation that Amenadiel is the firstborn? Because I feel like it is. Because then it's, for me, the final official confirmation that Amenadiel is Michael. My final note on this conversation is... Yeah, Amenadiel, just dust off the dress and let's go. 
I did not expect him to pull out the ancient dress. It makes sense, though. Absolutely. I simply didn't expect it. I'm there for it because I really, really like Amenadiel's old outfit. But in this scene, I feel we can actually see the similarities between the two outfits. Just saying. I was way too distracted by Amenadiel's speech because he is cutting hard and fast with words. And the way he phrases it and the way he states it and his whole body language, I am the fury and the righteousness of our father. Damn. This is first episode of Manadiel. Yeah, absolutely. When Uriel, being the smart little shit that he is, realizes that, haha, something must be off. I'm gonna punch him and see what happens. <laughs> Wherever that voice came from. <laughs> And then Yuria realizes that he now can start physically beating Amanadiel. Holy shit, that family is fucked up. They all need to go to see Linda right now. I have a question. Is Uriel, urinal as Lucifer calls him, is he just sitting on the rooftop for those 24 hours waiting for Lucifer to show up? Because it sure as hell fell that way. Keep in mind Uriel still has wings. He can simply teleport wherever. He does have wings, but also I'm pretty sure that Lucifer can somehow teleport as well. I just haven't figured out how. But yeah, Uriel is absolutely correct by assessing Ames's powers. He is smart and he sees patterns. I actually really like this power. Really? I'm gonna go into this later on because I have issues with that. Well, let's talk about it later. I just find it fascinating. Next up, we have good nerdy police work because Dan's fanboying in this scene is actually helping with the case solving. It's very obvious that it's a fucking business manager at this point. But yay, Dan solves the case. I found it super cute. How much of a super funds they are both at the beginning of the scene again when they're going through all the merchandise and they're like little childish going through all the little toys that they confiscated just because they could visual aid ah so relatable but i agree look at that dan is actually a good detective he's become a much better detective now that he's actually working yes and the plot thickens i call the next scene revelation time Revelation time, let's get into that because I have issues. Finally, Amenadiel comes clean because he literally has no other option anymore. Which, let's be honest, as much as we're razzing Amenadiel for not coming clean, it's a huge deal for him. Saying this and stating that he has those issues is nigh impossible for him. So it is actually understandable. And even when he comes clean, he instantly blames Lucifer for it. What I found extremely impressive is... There is zero judgment from Lucifer towards Amenadiel for falling. Literally zero. And the abruptness that he has in this moment is simply only because of the fact that now he needs to rush and make sure Chloe is out of danger. But the content of what he says is actually quite understanding. I think that Lucifer feels a bit of a camaraderie towards Ames. I mean, they've been kind of connecting for a while and now there's another thing that they have in common even though Ames is very much on the other side of the spectrum because Lucifer fell by choice and he technically didn't lose his powers. Lucifer did fall on his choice. He rebelled on his choice aware of consequences. Amenadiel did not rebel. He simply fucked up being a proper angel. And I think that if I look at it as a viewer again, as a plot device, as a character, this is the only way for him to go. He was on the top and he needs to fall really, really down for him to be able to pick himself up again and rebuild the structure of his personality, of his powers, of everything that he presents. So I actually, as a taking a step back and not thinking about him as a character whom I want to punch in the face... I love this character development. I love this arc and where this is going. So, yay. But also, fuck you. 
But now, if we move on to the next scene. Which I simply called more butterflies, because it's the second time we see extremely nicely set up how Uriel does not really get his hands dirty, but he tips one tiny stone. In this case, he bumps into a person to reach the effect that he wants to. But also, even though he started the order of events that he needed to start, the outcome was still out of his control, apparently. I think so, yes. Anyway, we're gonna get to it in like five minutes anyway. I just wanted to mention right now we've seen the pattern start, but also we get a really cool song again called California by Bahari, which is very lighthearted, kind of happy type of song, which (laughs) is really interesting. I just kind of watching the things happen, the domino effects, it just, it brings me so much joy. (laughs) And with that type of soundtrack... Anyhow, uh, we pop over for a second to mom's house. Which I called Barking Child. And my only note is Maze is the best badass and nothing else for this scene. Yeah, the only thing I, I have to say here is it's short and sweet and Maze is perfect. Absolute agreement with you there. Back to the butterfly effect. So there is another song that I could not find. I am very sorry for that. So if you were waiting for this and this was your favorite song, I'm sorry, okay? Dear listeners, if you do have this song, please let us know so we can try and find it and add it either to Spotify or YouTube or at least as a link to the episode description. Yes. Because we can edit those. And my first note on this is, haha, I knew Cordelia was involved. I'm not even gonna grace this with a reply. My first note is, is that a pump gun? What the fuck, America? Why would you have that? I just, I don't have words. Most of the scene for me is not very relevant. Even as much as I like Charisma Carpenter and Mark DeCascos as actors, I don't care about the business manager and the still wife having an affair and yada yada. It's like, that story, but I don't care. Honestly, I have to say I'm a little bit more invested in this story than I was in the last two episodes, Case of the Week. I'm only more invested into chemo because I really like Mark DeCascos. So that is for me a personal involvement. But the moment Chloe decides to intervene with Kimo to talk him down, Lucifer tries to stop her and she doesn't even have to do or say much to get him to back down. Which, good on Lucifer to respect her enough to acknowledge her need for independence. And of course, the entire speech is yes. This is the moment where, and I'm pretty sure I either read it somewhere or this is the assumption I made when I watched it the first time. It feels when Lucifer shows up, Chloe looks at him and before she decides to talk to Kimo, it looks like she's reaching for her gun. And then she completely takes her hands off the gun and just talks him down. I feel that this is a callback to the moment where Lucifer told her, this is opposite day. Do everything the other way than you would have normally done. So I feel, and this is, again, it feels very familiar, this theory to me. So I feel like I've read it somewhere. I feel you are extremely right because had she pulled the gun, he would have shot her and Uriel would have reached the end of events that he wanted to cause by bumping into the guy on the street. Her first instinct is take out the gun and then she sees Lucifer and this comes up in her brain and she changes her decision. I love this moment and I completely forgot this happened and honestly, I have no fucking clue if somebody told this to me or if it's just my brainchild, but this is now official canon. I hadn't heard this before. It makes a lot of sense and it also fits into the narrative that she is delivering because she talks about choice and free will, basically. We can't control what happens to us, only how it affects us and the choices we make. Yeah, so at the end of this scene, Lucifer decides he needs to deal with Uriel himself somehow. So he heads back to the penthouse. Lux family time. We get the Lux family time. We get a bit of a song called I See You Walk by Coco Moon. And I hate this scene so much. I hate it and I love it because, yes, on one hand, Mazakin is right because giving away mum 
would be the easy way. But also Lucifer is right when he gets upset because everybody has their own assumptions and their own interpretations, but nobody actually knows. And when Mace says, you know this is not what he meant, and him snapping back at her, do I? Everything makes so much sense. And I feel like mom watching this takes advantage of it and of the emotional state that Lucifer is in right now. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate mother (laughs) right now in this scene. And I just wish she wasn't there for this and that she gave herself up and Uriel fucking killed her right now. I see where you're coming from and I don't really disagree. I only have a few addendums. I feel Mace was not aware of how manipulative mom really is. Or otherwise she would not have let her talk and walk freely in the penthouse. And I feel like Mace realized that a bit more in this scene. Mom shows once again how extremely manipulative she is. I fully agree with Lucifer that literally no one knows what God wants because since there is no exact statement or wording, there is so much room for interpretation that nobody can possibly have any clue what he wants. And as Lucifer says, that's always the case with God. People have fought wars over what God meant. So I fully understand where you're coming from with I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, but it's so well done. And the direct resolution of this conversation leads us to the church. And we, as we watch Lucifer drive there in his amazing car, because I fucking love that car, mandatory, we listen to a song, and I'm gonna light up the mood now. We we listen to a song that is very weeby and very sad and everything, but it's called We Don't Eat by James Vincent Beckmorrow. (laughs) So, is this really the confirmation we get that angels don't eat? I don't think so. Mic drop. But I love it. I didn't pay attention to the song because very, very quickly in the scene, the Azrael's blade is name dropped. And Azrael is a girl. Apparently in this setting. I mean, in my opinion, angels don't have genders, but well, that's just me. I mean, they clearly have genitals because they can have sex. So I wonder, and then before we get into the events of this scene, which now I see I don't have many notes on because, well, duh, because I was just too taken by the scene. I hate when there's like emotional shit happening and I completely forget to take notes. One note, it's kind of a side question. Does this mean that Lucifer now owns Azrael's blade? Does he keep it? Because I don't think that he carries it back to the penthouse. He would never leave something like that lying around. But also keep in mind that Mace was there and Mace usually cleans up. Yeah, I feel like Mace would be the one who has it on her. And I would like to remember it because I feel like this is such a powerful weapon. My theory with this, which I just came up with because I'm that smart, is that he leaves it behind because he is with the events of the scene. He is very hurt. But Mace comes back. She sees the blade and cleans up by taking the blade and now having that against mom. So if it comes to it, she would be able to use it to save Lucifer. That's my now headcanon. I mean, come back as wake up from being knocked out. Scene 18, church meeting. My most important question in this scene is, where does the deep dislike and distrust towards mom come from within Uriel. Because he pretty much explicitly states that the only reason he came down because at some point she would weasel her way back into heaven and God would forgive her and then she would destroy him. What happened that your own child thinks you as their mother would destroy their father and probably all of creation? So I do not have a factual answer to this but thoughts and theory my theory 
is that Uriel, by the mere explanation of the mother we had from the previous scene, is the forgotten child, the middle child, the middle of the road child, somebody who nobody thinks about twice. So people like that tend to be overbearingly loving towards their parents because they need the attention they are looking for validation they want to be recognized as as good as everybody else and to me at this moment even in the way that you described in your first tangent that probably ended up in the bonus material so if you want some more of that go and become a believer it's very very cool with the whole Uriel being the one that is trying to validate himself in front of dad he is the one who's seen from the background pretty much what mom did before what happened that led dad to cast her out in the first place and he feels like this is all mom's fault so he needs to protect dad so basically the old patterns of mom are what he bases his assumption and prediction for the future the whole pattern stuff is problematic for me because I see an extremely high risk of eliminating choice and free will that way. If Uriel can read the patterns and knows what happens, that means that most of the happenings are not based on choice and free will. And as we know, I'm a huge, huge defender of free will and choice. So I have issues with the whole I see patterns and thus I can predict things. I feel that he is not... See, he says it a couple of times, patterns are tricky. To me, Lucifer saying it's the opposite day means that we still have the free choice, our free will, but it also means that we are predictable in our behavior, which is true. I'm going to react in a certain way because all of these things are predictable. And by leaving those patterns, we can change them. So I feel like they're not 100%. And this is what Uriel's power is kind of weird and makes it interesting to me. So he has powers of probability. Yes. He is like a superhero whose powers is statistics. Domino has powers of probability. The chick in Deadpool 2. Oh, yes. It makes sense. But I'm very, very happy with the distinction of patterns are not facts. Patterns are probabilities. Thank you for putting the second thing I had in my notes to rest for me. Ah, anytime. Now I only have two comments left for the scene. Mace enters, disarms the fucker, and even after he breaks her fucking arm, she doesn't even slow down. Fucking badass. I just, I love her so, so much. I just adore the whole fighting sequence from all three of them. I was so distracted and involved into the fight mace with Uriel that I didn't pay as much emotional attention to the second part when Lucifer and Uriel finish it up. And Lucifer straight up murders his brother. I did not see that coming. It's bad. That is where this episode really started to get me on an emotional level. I was very hyped from the fight with Mace and Uriel. Mace being a badass. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then she gets knocked out and Uriel starts fighting Lucifer and knocks him back. And he goes to the piano and goes like, oh, I'm gonna hit this key. And then in two days time, your detective is gonna be dead. And Lucifer just rushes him and straight up stabs the sword into him. I am convinced that if it weren't for the conversation he had with mom, this wouldn't have happened. I didn't realize it at the time, but when this happened and then when he comes back to the penthouse and she starts starts guilting him instantly, and I fucking hate this, but she is the reason. The conversation they had before he left for the church is a direct reason for him killing his brother because she says he is a stubborn boy he will not back down he will not change his mind there is no other way you're gonna have to take extreme measures she pretty much tells him what to do and he takes it and in this moment to me it makes absolute sense because in this moment lucifer believes that not only chloe will be dead mum will be dead himself would be left alone without any 
anybody who loves him. He just got his mom back, who he believed she hated him. And he gets this back, this glimper of hope that he thought for millennia was lost. And he's told by his own mother, he will not back down for anything. And this is the only solution. And I hate it. Extreme measures is nothing else but a euphemism for murder. She hurt him on purpose. She hurt him in order to protect herself. She maneuvered this, definitely. But also, let's go into the last scene. After this straight up murdering his brother, we go into the final scene. And this is a scene that I find extremely interesting because we begin with Chloe reading Trixie a bedtime story. So on one hand, we have the bedtime story happening, which for me is oblivious happiness. Because those two are utterly unaware how close to dying Chloe came and how close to losing her mom for real Trixie came. And then we shift over to the penthouse and Lucifer leaves the elevator. And just like you said, the moment mom sees him, her behavior, her body language and every single word she utters is made to put the blame on him. And Lucifer is wrecked because this is not what the devil does. This is not him. This is not in any shape or form true to his personality. And when she takes him in her arms and we see his face, that seriously got me. There is a song that plays to this compilation of scenes and it's called Whirlwind of Rubbish. I mean, there we go. It's by Toy Drum. If anyone's interested, it's on the playlist. But yeah. That really got me. And I must say, damn for Jason Ning, the writer. He really knows how to write emotionally effective closing scenes. I'm just gonna slide straight into my final thoughts here. Because this episode, the way it's written, it's weirdly always make me talk about things of the episode overall rather than scene by scene it's not very separate it holds very well together and i said it very many times at this stage i hate this i hate how this makes me feel i hate that lucifer is hurting and i hate that his mom who's supposed to be there for him is the one that makes him hurt deliberately and makes it worse at the end and it's just it makes me hurt too and i don't like that but other than that yes it's very well written we get to see chloe being absolutely amazing on a couple of different levels the way trixie is worrying for her mom is just really nice to watch and mace is being absolute treasure in this episode so the only two people i kind of hate in this episode is the normal amount of hate towards ames because he is just being super stupid but then is mom I don't know how to get through this I'm not really sure how to get over the feeling I have towards her right now so I am absolutely up for watching some more of this right now because I just want to get through this horrible moment I hate this so much a certain level I understand what you mean emotionally but those painful and ugly and unnice emotions are why I watch shows like this. This is what I get out of it. I actually want more of this. If I'm not suffering when I'm watching a show, then the show is not doing its job. You need to find your masochistic side, I think. Yeah, look, I am not saying this is not a good episode and I don't love this episode. No, 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 I know, I know. But I think if you find your emotional masochist, then you might have even more fun with this. I know what you mean. I'm just not sure if I'm ready for that right now. I pretty much agree. Also, this is the second time in a row that we have such an impactful ending. And it really gives the feeling they want you to keep being engaged in this. As good as I found the writing in this episode, I felt there was a lot in it and that led to me feeling a bit rushed in the overall episode. But out of the three that Jason Ning wrote so far, this is by far the best. And he's gonna write us a few more. And if I saw it correctly, he's also the one who will have been writing the season 5 finale. So he's gonna be with us quite for a while now. I really like Mace's depiction throughout the entire episode. Chloe, as I mentioned, and as you already said yourself, definitely seems 
seemed less capable as usual, but I excused it as the aftermath of being in a fucking car wreck. And while I appreciate that AIM's stuff is now finally out in the open and we hopefully can get proper personal growth, for me, the more relevant male story was the bonding potential between Le- uh, Lucy and Dan. And yeah, I can't wait to watch the next episode. So they're doing a good job. Well, with the hate in my heart towards this outcome and the love in my heart towards our listeners, thank you for (laughs) suffering through this with me. And if you want to keep in touch with us and share more than just the emotional bond with us, you can do so via our various social media. You can just look up The Apple of Truth on all the platforms and you can find us there. Or you can send us an email to lucifer at taot-podcast.com. Our episodes can be found on Spotify and iTunes. And as we mentioned throughout this episode, there is another way to get involved with us. And that is becoming one of our absolutely amazing Patreons. To do so, you simply go to patreon.com slash podcast. You have to type it in. You can't search for us because we're marked explicit. And then you can either become a heathen or a believer. And... If you decide to do that, we will be forever grateful. If you don't want to do that, we totally understand. Please tell all your friends about this amazing podcast that you, of course, are nonstop listening to. And if you are so inclined, we appreciate any type of feedback and, of course, especially iTunes reviews because you do need to have an iTunes account for that. So if you have one and you like us, please leave us an iTunes review. And with this we say thank you. Bye. Bye.